Are you glad for God's grace? And when he threw those shackles in the sea, he put a no fishing sign right there where he threw them. And so I hope you enjoy that liberty and we are to share it without partiality. Take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James 2, 1 through 13. If you need a Bible, you can take a pew Bible there, open it up, and and you can take it home with you as well. We want you to be in the Word of God. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and And we're humbled to know that we're coming to the judge, the righteous judge of all the earth. And we tremble knowing that without a mediator, without an intercessor, without an advocate to come between us and you, then we are worthy of eternal judgment. And so we're, we're grateful, Lord. We're grateful that you have provided that mediator. You have provided that intercessor. You have provided the Lord of glory in his humiliation to be our intercessor. And so, Lord, we come before you knowing that what we have been given, we are to share. And so, open our hearts. Convict us. Let us see ourselves in the mirror of your word. 
And Lord, may we leave here having been transformed by your spirit and by your word, by the word that is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a fallen world where sin is rampant, where sin is prevalent. And as a result of that, we live in a world where favoritism and discrimination in all its various forms are real and present. James calls it the sin of partiality. And God has placed his church, our church even, smack dab in the middle of this culture in which we live. And as God's people, we are now called to treat people with an entirely different perspective. It's a perspective that James alludes to and references as true religion. What we have learned so far in this series as real faith in Jesus Christ. We learned last Sunday in the, in the first part of this uh, chapter, chapter 2, and it's really a, a, a two-part chapter. Uh, topic that we're dealing with here, we learned last Sunday that true religion loves all people, and we saw last Sunday that it does so by destroying this sin of partiality that James is dealing with here in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And it also does so by by displaying the very glory of Jesus Christ. The problem is, and we, we alluded to this, we talked about this last Sunday, is that although we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we still enter into God's family with baggage. We all come to church carrying the luggage of our former lives. And in one of those pieces of luggage we carry is the culture's way of treating people that's all too often based on one's appearance or on their accent, their economic status, or even the color of their skin. And so the question that's being raised now in these first 13 verses is this, does, does your religion cause you to treat everyone justly? Does your, your faith in Jesus Christ compel you now to love all people like Christ loved all people? You see, as we have learned, and, and we'll see it even further here today in the second part of this, the sin of partiality is a big deal to our Heavenly Father. Because it's really a double-sided sin. One side is favoritism, the other side is discrimination. Favoritism is when you treat someone better based on external criteria. Whereas discrimination is when you treat someone less based on external criteria. So what is the answer now to this problem of partiality? And as James deals with it, he's not dealing with the issue of partiality so much as in the world and in the culture. Rather, he's dealing with the problem in the church of how we treat one another and even those that come in who are unbelievers into the church. So what is James' solution to this? How can we now overcome this sin of partiality? And James does not leave us guessing. He tells us how. And here's what we're going to see. We see that true religion, what is true faith in Jesus Christ, overcomes partiality by fulfilling the royal law of love and showing the mercy of God. 
At the end of chapter 1, James defines true religion as real faith expressing itself in real life. And then immediately here at the beginning of chapter 2, James applies our true religion, our true faith in Jesus, to the way that we now treat people. James is confronting, as we already said, this the sin of partiality in the church. Why? Because the church should be the last place on earth where God's people treat people better or less based on external criteria. Why? Because as we saw last Sunday, partiality is incompatible with true faith or true religion. James commands us here in verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold or embrace the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then immediately in verses 2 through 4, James gives us this example of how partiality can creep into the church. And then in verses 5 and 7, James shows us how partiality is actually, it's inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does that with asking us several rhetorical questions. And now we come to the second part here. We come to verses 8 through 13, where James is going to show us how to actually overcome this problem of partiality. And so what I want us to do for the next few minutes here is to unpack what James says about overcoming this sin of partiality in our lives. And the first point that we learn, the first way that James highlights to us here is to fulfill what he calls the royal law of love, and to do so impartially. Fulfill the royal law of love impartially. Notice again what James writes in verses 8 and 9. Look at what he says with me in your Bibles. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, and then he tells us what this law is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is, he's actually telling us a lot here in these two verses. And the first thing that he is making clear to us here is this. Notice it in your notes, that partiality, it actually violates this royal law of love. And it even convicts us as lawbreakers. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's making clear to us right away. Now, the question is, well, why does James call it the royal law? Well, because it's been given by King Jesus, this law, and it actually reveals the ethics of his kingdom regarding who we love and how we love. And this word royal that he attaches to it, it actually means that which belongs to a king. Now, if you go back to verse 5, James has already told us that that believers are heirs of the kingdom. And as such, we now live under the law of this king. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. And so a royal law that now says to us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That law is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ the king. And we understand that law even through the teachings of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And so James is making it clear to us that partiality violates this royal law of love, and it convicts us now as lawbreakers. Now, what James is doing, he's actually quoting here from Leviticus 19, verse 18, when God says to his people, love your neighbor as yourself. 
But the context of that is what we looked at last Sunday. The context of this command comes after God says earlier in that same chapter, in verse 15, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbors as fairly or as justly. Now, we know, too, that Jesus now took this law to a whole nother level when he summed up the law in two great commandments. We, we shorten it even to just love God and love others. And we see this in Matthew 22 when a Pharisee approaches Jesus and asks Jesus this question, testing Jesus and saying to him in verse 36 of Matthew 22, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus says to him in verses 37 through 40, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so like all of us would naturally ask, we want to find loopholes in the law. And so what would the natural question be to that second command? Well, who's my neighbor? Because after all, you know, I need to find a loophole so I don't really have to do everything that the law says. And so that would be the natural question that would come to our minds when we're seeking a loophole. And sure enough, another Pharisee approaches Jesus, wanting to justify himself, and asks Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, that very question. And who is my neighbor? And some of you know Jesus answered by telling him a story. The story is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And through that story, Jesus teaches us that our neighbor, in answering the question, who is our neighbor, is really anyone in need that God gives you the opportunity to help. And so in this way, the royal law now calls on us to love everyone and to do so impartially. And then James now comes on the scene here, and he says... Listen, if you fulfill this law, if you fulfill the royal law, listen, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. The problem here is no one has ever perfectly fulfilled the law except Jesus Christ. You see, the law is meant to bring us to the very end of ourselves and actually to prepare us to humbly receive the gift of Christ's righteousness by faith. And then as Christians who have the very power of God, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, we now can begin to do what? To fulfill the law. We can begin to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We can begin to love other people as ourselves, and thus we fulfill God's law. This is why James says in verse 8, If you really fulfill this, you're doing well. You are pleasing God, in other words. Now, it's not to earn your salvation. Rather, it is to show that you already have salvation, to show that Jesus is your king and you belong to his kingdom. How? By loving your neighbor as yourself. But don't miss what James says in the rest of verse 8. He says, but, but... And the word but there is a contrast. James is saying, but if you show partiality, 
You are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So now James is bringing home the reality that this problem of partiality is no small sin as we like to think it is. James is bringing home the reality that partiality, it is a big deal to God. It is sin. It's a violation of the royal law of love. And when we show partiality, James is letting us know, he's highlighting that we are actually guilty of breaking the law. Now remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians. And some of these Christians may have been trying to justify their partiality. So we might imagine them thinking to themselves how well they are doing at keeping the law. After all, the law tells them to love their neighbors, and that's exactly what they think they are doing. But they're only loving some of their neighbors. That is the rich who were coming into their assembly. We know this to be the case from the example that James just wrote about in verses 2 through 4. But to keep the law selectively is actually to break it entirely. That is the point James is making. When it comes to keeping the law, it's all or nothing. In other words, notice in your notes, if we break just one part of the law, we are guilty of breaking all the law. Now, I don't know about you, but that is totally unexpected. We don't expect James to say that. And the reason for that is because we naturally tend to think that obedience belongs in this category of partial success. Kind of like your teenager's room being partially cleaned. You know, you tell them to clean their room and they get it halfway cleaned. And you ask them about it, well, I cleaned this and I picked up that. And you're like, but it's not clean. It's not all the way clean. And so we think obedience belongs to this category of partial success, not the all or nothing category. You see, human nature says keeping the law can be partially done. But James actually says that is wrong thinking because the law is an integrated unit that hangs together as one law, he's emphasizing. As one commentary states, The law is both vertical, that is love toward God, and horizontal, that is love toward others, and every other law connects to them. They hang together because they together reflect the very nature and character of God. Thus, as William Barclay writes, he says, During the early years of the church, many Jews were apt to regard the law as a series of detached commands. So to keep one law was to gain credit, but to break one law was to incur a debt. Therefore, a man could add up the ones he kept and subtract the ones he broke, and so emerge with a credit or debit balance. But James is showing us that if we break one part of the law, that we are actually guilty of breaking all of the law. Why? Because there's only one law, James is telling And obedience to that one law is all or nothing. Look at verse 10. Look at his logic, his argument here. James says in verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty 
of it all. In other words, partial obedience in one part of the law is actually disobedience to the whole law, and therefore we are guilty of breaking all of the law. Tony Evans gives this analogy. He says, if you're hanging over the side of a cliff by a chain with 10 links, it doesn't matter if nine of the links hold. If just one link breaks, you're going down because all the links are interconnected. One commentator put it this way. The law is not like a heap of stones, but a sheet of glass. We could take one stone from a heap and still have a heap of stones. But when we throw a rock through a window, it strikes only one place, but it shatters the whole window. The law of God is like a glass. A break at one point cannot be contained. The cracking and shattering spreads over the entire area. Now, my wife and I, we actually saw this firsthand when my boys were kids. In my enthusiasm as a dad, I got my two boys BB guns for Christmas. And I know what you're thinking. What? Are you crazy, Bruce? Well, maybe a little bit back then. So one day, and I can't remember, Tyler, if, if he was back there with Jack, but Jack and Tyler are, are on the back deck, and they're shooting at a target in the backyard that we kind of had set up. And Darla is watching in our kitchen from the inside through the back door. And in his enthusiasm, as a kid, Jack wanted to scare my wife by pointing the gun at her as she's standing through the window at the back door and act like he's going to shoot her. The only thing is, he forgot he had cocked the gun. And before we could warn him, no, Jack, you don't ever point a gun at anybody, he had pulled the trigger. And you guessed it, the whole glass shattered from one small little BB hole in the glass. And we had to replace the whole window, not part of the window. Here's the point. Keeping God's law is all or nothing. Why? Because there's only one law and there's only one lawgiver. We see this in verse 11. Look what it says. Look what James says. For he who said... Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, what James is saying is this. Good behavior in one area of your life does not cancel out law-breaking in another area of your life. He's saying, listen, that doesn't work before a judge and a jury, and it certainly doesn't work before God as the almighty judge. You don't stand before a judge guilty of murder and say to the judge, but your honor, I've never committed adultery, so you ought to let me go for murder. That's absurd. James says it doesn't work that way, and the reason it doesn't work is clear, because the same lawgiver stands behind all the law. The same God who prohibits adultery also prohibits murder, as well as partiality. In fact, notice the emphasis here that James uses when he says the word he. he, He's referencing he at the beginning of verse 11. For he who said. And so who is that referencing? Who is the he? It's God. And so when we think about the law, James wants us to think about God first and foremost, not a list of commands. 
Why? Because God is the lawgiver, and the reason God's law matters is that this law that he gives us, it is an expression of his will for our lives. And so breaking God's law. Listen, it's not mainly an issue of violating a code of ethics or breaking a command. It is fundamentally an issue of unfaithfulness to God as the lawgiver. And so James is exposing a danger here for us. He's exposing the danger in the mindset that we can have as Christ followers that is content to live with partial obedience. This is the problem. If people pick and choose what they want to obey in God's word, then they are still very much their own God. But all the commands are united by this one principle. God gave them all. All the commands are united by that. And so if we say to ourselves, listen, I will follow the law about murder, but not follow the law about partiality or pick any other issue, then we are basically saying, listen, I'll obey the laws that I want to obey. I'll obey the, the commands, Lord. I'll, I'll do what you want. To, I'll, do, I'll obey what I like or what seems right to me or, or suits my purpose. And this approach, it forgets that God gave every law, and it enthroned self as God over God Almighty. And so James is saying to us that if we disobey any law, we disobey God. We're not simply breaking his law. We're rejecting him as Lord. We're rejecting him as lawgiver. And so failing to love your neighbor in the way that God requires us in this royal law, is to violate that royal law of love. It's to break the very law that Jesus now sums up in a way regarding God's will for our lives, even today as Christ followers, and that is to love God and love others. So if we're going to overcome partiality, then we must fulfill the royal law of love and to do so impartially. And then we must also, number two, show the mercy of God mindfully. Look what James says here in verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, What we see here is good news and bad news in these two verses. The good news is that those who show mercy will receive what? Mercy. The bad news is those who judge without mercy will be judged without mercy. And so again, James is telling us something here rather important about partiality. And now he does so in relation to the mercy of God. He's telling us, notice this in your notes, that partiality violates the mercy of God or defies the mercy of God and actually brings the judgment of God upon us. In other words, partiality exposes us now to God's judgment. Why? Because showing partiality and therefore breaking the royal law of love 
is a failure on our part to show mercy. Mercy is love. Specifically, mercy is love directed to those who really need it. But when you show partiality and show love to people you favor, like that was happening in James' day in the church there, that is not true biblical love. That's not fulfilling the royal law of love. And so James wants us to know that showing mercy and doing so impartially is the way that we fulfill the royal law of love. In fact, at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the answer to the very question of why that story was told by Jesus, who is my neighbor, the answer in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 37 is this, the one who showed him mercy. You see, the showing of mercy is the way, James is saying to us here, it's the way, it's the means by which we love our neighbors as ourselves and thereby fulfill the royal law of love. Now, James concludes his argument against partiality by by giving us a motivation to do this, to fulfill the royal law of love. He, He wants us to be motivated by this, to to show the mercy of God and to be mindful that partiality exposes you to God's judgment. So notice the twofold motivation to show mercy. First of all, be merciful to avoid judgment without mercy. Now, you may be a little shocked to hear that Christians will face judgment. But it's true, Christians will one day stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it is also true that Christians will not be judged on their justification. In other words, we as Christians here, we are not in danger of facing condemnation because that issue was settled when we accepted Christ for our salvation, if that is you, if that's true of you. But Christians will stand before God to give an account of our lives, and if we want mercy in that day, we must show mercy now. And so Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And James is now highlighting this for us. He's, He's making us aware of this judgment And he's reminding us here in verse 12 that our very words and our deeds or our actions will be judged. James says in verse 2, look at it. Look at it again. He says, therefore, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so, yes, this law brings liberty. James has already referenced that. We've already talked about that before. And it brings us freedom. This law brings us freedom from the very penalty of sin. That's why there is no condemnation for those who have true faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, we will also be judged under this law. In other words, this law will expose the kind of lives we have lived here on this earth. And whether or not we have been impacted and shaped by real faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because as we've seen already, James is building this argument, true religion is seen in how we show mercy to other people. And James is telling us here, he's reminding us here, 
not to play around with this issue of partiality. It's a big deal to God. In fact, he even says in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is the first motivation for us to show mercy is to be mindful to avoid judgment without mercy or to be merciful to avoid judgment. The second motivation is the converse of that. Number two, second of all, to be merciful so you will receive mercy from God. So here's a question. Do you want God to show you mercy? I hope so. Then James would say to you, then be merciful so you will receive mercy. In fact, Jesus actually said the same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus says, For you will be judged by the same standard by which you judge others. And so the way that you judge other people determines the way that God judges you. So if your mercy on others triumphs when you judge them, then God's mercy on you will triumph when he judges you. This is actually the the flip side of what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 7, when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In other words, God will show mercy to those who have been merciful to others, and he will not show merciful to those who have not been merciful. Now, again, let's just stop and let's be honest here with one another. At least be honest with God. We all stumble on this, do we not? We all stumble in showing mercy. But if you love the Lord, then you will be motivated to repent when that happens. And so when James says to the one who has shown no mercy, I I personally, I understand that to me, that he's actually talking about unbelievers who are merciful. In other words, he's referencing those people who are actually, their lives are characterized by partiality, is characterized by selfishness, and most of all, their lives are characterized by unrepentance. Which means, if you're here this morning, and you are withholding mercy, and you are unrepentant of that, In other words, you are content to just live that way. James would be saying, listen, you need to check your heart. Because that's a pretty good indication that you're not born again. You're not a true believer with real faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it is not that we earn God's mercy by showing mercy. It's not what James is saying but rather that if we do not show mercy, then that is an indication. It reveals that we have not yet received God's mercy in Jesus Christ. So James is not saying that we need to be merciful to others in order to earn the mercy of God. That's impossible. Why? Because you cannot earn mercy. That's why it's mercy. It's mercy because it cannot be earned. But James is saying that we actually demonstrate that we have received God's mercy when we do what? When we show mercy to others. In fact, think about it. The gospel itself is defined by mercy. 
Sam Alberry writes in his commentary on the book of James, and I quote, he says, Jesus loved us even when we were unlovely in his sight. He gave promises to us that we did not deserve. And he showered us with blessings that we could never have earned. Having been treated in this way, we will start to treat others in the same way. There is no other way to make a human being merciful than for them to become gripped and defined by the mercy of God to them. But those who don't show mercy will not receive mercy. Why? Because by their very lack of mercy shows that they have never really received God's mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the very proof that we have been captivated by God's mercy in Christ is that we now show it to others. But still... I don't know about you. We know how imperfectly we do this, do we not? We fall short of showing mercy. We fall short every day of showing mercy. And so knowing that truth, James ends in verse 13 by reminding us of a greater truth, and that is mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, in Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, this is God's mercy for you here this morning in Christ, which was demonstrated in the cross of Christ. You say, how is that even possible? Well, Albert Barnes explains it this way. In the plan of salvation, respect is done to justice, but mercy triumphs. Justice demands as what is due that the sinner should be condemned but mercy pleads that he may be saved, and mercy prevails. And I love what this one commentator says in his commentary. He says, in the cross of Christ, justice was fully done. Its claims were fully met. In God's mercy to sinners, triumphed in the provision of a complete forgiveness and a full salvation. Oh, how we need the mercy of God in the cross of Christ. So praise God here this morning that he brings both justice and mercy together in the cross of Christ. And that now we here, we, everyone, all of humanity has the opportunity to be declared right before God Almighty based on not our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. James is saying that when you have experienced that kind of mercy at the foot of the cross, Listen, you will show mercy to others. This is James' conclusion to a problem of partiality. This is where we see the triumph of mercy over partiality. In other words, what James is building this climactic conclusion to here is that mercy triumphs over partiality when we love all people, when we fulfill the royal law of love. You see, the beauty of James' practical approach here to real faith is that it just kind of wades through, it cuts through all the religious cliches and rhetoric. James is is saying that real faith is not demonstrated only by avoiding these, quote, big sins like adultery or murder, but rather it is demonstrated in how we treat one another, how we treat all people. Do we love people without 
partiality. And when we experience God's love and mercy for us in Jesus Christ, then we can do nothing more or less than to show love and mercy to others. This is the whole point of what James is saying. Mercy triumphs over partiality when we love all people and thus we fulfill the royal law of love. But still there's this lingering question that hangs out here. What if I fail? What if I fail? That's a question we all are asking since we all fail to love all people. So what if I break the royal law of love? Does that mean that I can forget about being in God's kingdom? And the answer is yes, unless you are one of those people that James describes earlier in verse 5 of chapter 2. You see, what James is telling us here, that if you fulfill the royal law of love, if you fail to do that, you've shattered the king's law. And if you've broken the king's law, listen, the king would have every right to banish you from his kingdom. And so if you've broken the royal law of love, you can forget about being in God's kingdom unless you're one of those people described here in verse 5. In verse 5, James says that God has promised his kingdom to a certain group of people. You say, well, who are they? Because I want to make sure I'm in that group. You better believe you want to make sure you're in that group. Look what James says in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So these are people who have what? Faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. These are people who love God. So how do I know then if I'm in that group? all. I I think I have real faith. I think I love God. But how can I be so sure? This is one of James' purposes in writing this chapter. This is how you know if you have real faith or you have true religion. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will show mercy to people without partiality. And when you fell in that... You will repent, and you will seek God's forgiveness, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your forgiveness and salvation. And if that is you, then God will show you mercy instead of judgment. And if this mercy toward you has triumphed over his judgment of you, then James is saying, let that mercy now toward others triumph over partiality. Let's pray. If you're not a Christian here this morning, and if you've never received God's mercy in Jesus Christ, well, I invite you to do so now, right where you're seated. God's mercy is available to anyone who will repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so even now, I encourage you to look to the mercy that triumphs over judgment in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Right there in your seat, cry out to God.
pray to him, begging him for his mercy in Jesus to save you, trusting him alone for your salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace and mercy that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. It's overwhelming to think about the depth of your love for us in giving us your son to die on the cross in our place so that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, we need, oh, do we need your love and mercy in our lives. We need that love and mercy to transform our lives so that we will love you and love people without partiality. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.